You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 120 is Steve Harley, a British musician who started in the early 70s with Cockney Rebel. You're right now hearing some of his biggest hit, Make Me Smile, parentheses, Come Up and See Me, from 1975's The Best Years of Our Lives, their third album, and the first that was under the band name Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel since the original lineup had split up. His seventh album in 1978 was the first that was under his own name. He more or less stopped in the 80s. He had some singles... Notably saying on the first release recording from the Phantom of the Opera soundtrack as the Phantom, put out a couple solo albums in the 90s, then 2005, 2010. We're celebrating right now his new release, 2020's Uncovered. We'll first be talking about Compared With You, parentheses, Your Eyes Don't Seem to Age, which is a new updated arrangement of one of his songs from 1976. We'll then look back to the song Faith and Virtue from his 2010 album Stranger Comes to Town, and then go back to consider one of his classic early tunes, Cockney Rebels, Bed in the Corner, plus its sort of coda, Sling It, from the 1974 album, The Psychomodo. We'll conclude by listening to the other original tune from Uncovered, Only You. For more information, please visit steveharley.com. For more about this podcast, visit nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. To support our efforts, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic which grants all recurrent contributors of a however small an amount access to our ad-free feed. So I'll have played a little bit of Make Me Smile, Come Up and See Me, just to get your hit out there. But I wanted to get to the current album. And of course, the current album is largely covers, including Covering Yourself. So the, the song I picked for us to talk about was the Compared With You, parentheses, Your Eyes Don't Seem to Change. In other words, a remake compared with the, the old love Parentheses compared with you from back in the day, Prima Donna 1976, but with an added verse. Before we get into sort of the song as it existed back then and how you've updated, let's talk about this album as a whole and the arrangement choices you chose. I understand from other interviews that you, this kind of came out of songs that you enjoy playing by yourself on acoustic guitar. So is, I'm interpreting the, the production that way. Yeah, that's about right. I don't like them as covers. We'd like to call them interpretations. I know it sounds a bit pretentious, but um, they're so different to the originals. The nine of them that are not my own, the two on the album are mine and nine are not mine, as you know. Yeah, there's songs, as it happens, that amongst 20 or so that I just play all the time for many, many, many years. Can't explain it. They're like uh, the Paul McCartney song, I've Just Seen a Face. I was having my son's 37, and he was dancing to that when he was four with me playing the guitar in the living room or in his bedroom. They're great songs. They're all great songs, great songs. And the, the main criterion for people like me who are going to interpret someone else's song is, do you wish you'd written it? And the answer is yes, on every count. Yeah, so it wasn't hard to collect them. I wrote in the sleeve notes on the CD and the, the vinyl even that um, there's a guitar in each of three rooms in my house all the time. I go into the living room, perhaps, late in the evening, and I might be thinking, okay, I'm going to watch some football. And I'm sitting there, and in the corner is this, it's an HD 35 Martin from 1974. It's a magnificent instrument. It's Martin's flagship. It's beautiful to own one. It's just a privilege. And you touch it, and I look at it, and I think, you look so beautiful. I've got to pick you up, caress you, and tune you, and strum and pick. And, you know, tunes come or they don't come, but the pleasure of holding that wonderful instrument, that work of art, is such a joy. 
So I play all the time. I mean, uh, all the time. My fingers are raw. You know, if I'm not on stage, which I am a, <laughs> a lot of the time, I still play at home. And I've been playing those songs. There you are. And one day, my engineer, my friend, Matt Butler, who is a great engineer, he just said, why do you keep talking about this? Let's do it. I had to find the right players. I've always wanted to make a record, Mark, that had no keyboards, no electric guitar, no overdubs, you know, a real organic, pure piece of work. And now I've done it. Well, let's get the example out there. Let's just let him hear it in full. So this is compared with you, parentheses, your eyes don't seem to age. Trying to write this line But the years have gone by in no time And you know It's not easy For a boy in love But I had to find the clue It could only come from you Like a waterfall You tingled me With your And you know that since you loved me, I have everything. Hey, you know that since you loved me, it's been easy. All the things that I've been through. Don't mean a thing compared with you You can give me life forever In a moment You carry me like a child You're a goddess when I'm wild When I'm desperate and black You are gold I confess that since you loved me, I have everything. I confess that since you loved me, it's been easy. Yes, I know we've reached a stage. But your eyes don't seem to age You can light the darkest hour With your laughter All the times I've been afraid You bring me comfort unashamed You're the only one who sees What I'm after And you know That since you loved me, I have everything Yeah, you know that since you loved me, it's been easy 
the obvious love of the guitar comes out of here. So you're saying even the strings were not overdubbed? Other strings were. We took the files to Holland, to a really wonderful studio in the north of Holland on the coast. And we took the files, my engineer and I, and worked on their brilliant Pro Tools. And yeah, yeah, we overdubbed there for three tracks, the String Quartet, beautifully arranged by Thomas Toll. Just fabulous. It was tear-jerking when he was putting them down. Fabulous arrangements. And Eddie Reader, she sings a duet with me on Star of Belle Isle. We took the files up to Scotland, where she lives, and she sang a duet for me. It's organic. It's pure. There's no no EQ on this album. Yeah, that's amazing. With Well, I guess there's if you're playing full drum kit, it's very hard not to have to EQ something. There is a drum kit on a few of the tracks, but he was very, very seriously, uh, he was in the, the main vocal booth. He had all that locked off. It was completely silent coming out of there. Yeah, no EQ, nowhere. Basically, I was saying to a great engineer, don't engineer. We've got the best players, and we all came with the best instruments that money can buy. Hand-built guitars, massively invaluable double bass, the violin and viola are ancient pieces of work. He's got a collection of wonderful microphones, some vintage stuff from Abbey Road, mostly. We're in the best studio with the best Pro Tools. Don't mess with it. I just said to him, I want it to be like I'm in their living room. No microphone, just a man with his guitar and some friends playing. And that's how it sounds. My voice is like in 3D. I've never heard a record like it. And I'm thrilled to bits to be, you know, part of it, to be honest. So this was you and Martin Simpson on the other guitar and Ollie Hayhurst on double bass. Was that the core, on this song at least, that was playing live? Or Yeah, and the, and the string quartet. Martin Simpson is... Do you know of Martin? I know I've seen the name in a couple of places, but no, I've not, not seen him live. With the claw hammer, finger-picking style, he's a master. And I've been a fan forever, and there's no such thing as bad music. So we all come from different worlds. I mean, I'm pretty mainstream compared to Martin, who is very folk. He's from the Yorkshire, the Roots world. Whereas I'm not. I'm a Londoner. We don't have folk music in London. I never grew up with any of that. We're from different musical worlds. But, you know, I said to him, I'm doing this. Would you come and play on this album of songs? And he immediately said yes. And I said, well, didn't you want to think about it? And he, they, You see, we each think it's a privilege to play with the other. It's a nice feeling. He had great respect for my catalog, which he knew quite well. And we took each other out of our comfort zones. Well, on this, I really like, so, I mean, you've got a beautiful, which I assume is kind of this expansive finger-picking part is what you've been doing on your own. And then he just seamlessly blends into that so that he's answering you some of the time and he's hitting high notes a couple times, but it doesn't really sound like a lead except at the very beginning. He's the lead picking on that track in particular. My guitar is the one playing the higher oh, okay. parts. Yeah, that's the second guitar, really. I'm not very good. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you're blending brilliantly with him. Let me put it that way. Martin is all over this album, playing the first guitar parts, all that finger-picking. There's lots of it in... Um, he plays all kinds of tunings that I can only... I, I mean, he tells me about them, and I just go, oh, that's Greek to me. You know, it's just foreign science. How are you communicating initially with him? I mean, did he have a demo? Did you know that, okay, it's going to be some kind of eighth note? Da, 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 you know, so that it's going to be something with that Good question. No, no, no. All of those 11 tracks to each musician, I sent the originals to 
the other nine and said, look, this is just the song, because they didn't know them all. The rhythm section, Tom Hooper and Ollie Hayhurst, they went to the Royal Academy of Music and studied jazz. So they're way out of their comfort zone with me. But no, I said, this is the track, and they didn't even know. Some of them didn't know the Beatles song. They didn't know Compared With You of Mine. So I said, look, here's the originals, but please then throw them away. I'm in this key, not that key. Then throw them in the bin, because that's not how it's going to be. I actually didn't compare it. With your voice changing over the years, did you change keys between the versions? Yeah, my voice has changed immensely because of so much exercise, singing on the road, you know. Um, yeah, the keys, I don't know, I just moved the key. Whatever, I was going to sing some of those other people's songs in my own, the key I fancied. We went into the studio completely unprepared. There was no rehearsal, nothing. We just met up at this residential studio, Rockfield, in Monmouthshire in Wales. And we met that first morning. We got to chew the cud, got to know each other a little bit, made two or three pots of coffee and tea and said, OK, guys, I'm going to start with this song. And that was it. We were on a roll. No, with, even compared with you, that opening arpeggio that Martin plays so beautifully, and then the um, Barry comes in with his viola, that was Martin making it up on the spot. I mean, whether he'd considered it at home or in his car on the way there, I don't know. I would play it on the piano, but we didn't want any piano on the album. So it was very much his own invention. So what take is this about? This is not first take, right? You at least played through it a couple times. None of these took any time. We recorded 12 tracks. I say 11. We recorded 12. One didn't make the cut with all but the girl singers and the string quartet. Martin and the rhythm section went home after six days. It was all finished. It was so wonderful. Well, you know, when you're on a roll, something good is happening. And I just let it roll on. Roll, roll, roll. You know, what you're doing, guys? You know, I'm the producer, but basically it's, come on, what ideas have you got? Musicians love that. They love improvising and throwing their two cents in the pot, you know? So even your second guitar was more or less improvised against what Martin was doing while you were singing. Is that what I'm understanding here? Because it's not just strama strama. It's finger picking still. You know, you're answering him. Mine is flat picking, but most of the second mm. guitar on the album is Barry Wickens, the fiddle player. Okay. Most of the tracks that you'll hear are Barry. The second guitar is Barry Wickens. He's a phenomenal musician. He plays a uh, great violin and viola, as everyone knows, but he's also a fine guitarist. Now, I would rather sit back. Most of the tracks, I'm sitting in the control room with a guide voice going into their headsets from the control room. Yeah, the vocal booth, as I told you, was taken up with the drum kit. <laughs> You're singing a guide vocal into their headsets just while sitting in a different room. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> in, a, in the control room with the engineer. <laughs> Pretty funky. Okay, so then the final vocal take, in most cases, you overdubbed. The vocals, I sang 12 tracks in one day and a few hours the second day. It was two takes every time. I'd sing it, and Matt would say, well, okay. Because you see... Try to picture this, Mark. Um, when you make an album of new songs, you go into the studio. I've, I've made 12 of them where I've written pretty well every, every song, every note. And you go in and they're your songs, but you've still only sung them at home and on demos. Then when you're in there with fine musicians in the best recording places, you sing it one way and then over years it develops on stage, you know? When you're singing familiar songs, my two songs have been familiar to me for a very, very long time. The other nine, I've been singing, as I told you, forever. So to sing them was second nature. 
I had no question about where I'd put the uh, meter, the rhythm, inflection. I had no question. I just sang the song. And it sounded fantastic. We had really, really wonderful headphones, brand new sets of ridiculously clever stuff, a wonderful microphone. And I said, I want you to hear what I had for breakfast. I wanted the microphone to hear every little sound in my voice, every, every syllable, every, every um, consonant, every k, d, p, s, t, you know? So it's truly organic. And I did a take, and I'd look at through the glass and say to him, my eyes were saying, that's it, Matt. It won't get any better. And he'd say, one more, Steve, one more for the edit, one more. So if, if I have to edit, okay, I'll do another one, Matt. And I sang it again. He'd mix the two tracks. On occasion, there were three. But if I did muck up, I would say, look, drop it. Let's wipe that. I'll just go again. You know, you get distracted and you think, oh, no, I fluffed that line. I can sing that better. And everyone else had gone home. It was just me and the engineer there. We started at 10 a.m. We stopped for a snack at lunchtime. We stopped for dinner. And by 10 o'clock at night, I'd sung the whole lot except for two. And we did them the next morning. Yeah, ridiculous. But as I said, if you're on a roll, keep rolling. So let's focus on the song for a minute. It's really evident. So I know that the change from the previous version is, is adding the final line, which already this was kind of a straight ahead song for you compared to, you know, the psychedelic stuff that we're going to hear a little later in this program. But still, there's just an obvious change in style that in the 70s, like a waterfall, you tingle me with your love. Whereas this new verse is you can light the darkest hour with your laughter. You know, it's much more straightforward. Yeah, I've been t telling audiences that we're out on the road as a four-piece, four-piece acoustic band. And the whole first set, the first hour is this album. And after the interval, it's about an hour and 20 minutes of my own set list, you know. They do ask me these questions. I hear it all the time. How have you changed? And I'm saying, well, I have, because I can write much more directly now. It was all metaphor and uh, simile and allegory in the past with strange characters. But compared with you in 76 was one of the first songs I'd ever written that was pretty direct, you know. Like a waterfall, you tingle me with your love. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. It's the sort of thing a woman wants to read in a Valentine's card. <laughs> <laughs> is it cheesy? Do you think it's a bit cheesy? Uh, no, because cheesy to me is cliche. And tingle me with your love, however kind of still psychedelic and odd that sounds, is not cheesy. I've always had a fondness for it, to be honest, Mark. You know, we all have our favorite children. And of all my babies, Compared With You always was one I, I like to perform in that I really enjoyed, uh, to this day, I love the idea of an audience is looking, and women in particular are looking, and they're of a certain age now. And they've grown up with me for all those years, 45, 46 years. And I know they're looking in that audience, and they're listening, and they're hearing me say, all the things that I've been through don't mean a thing compared with you. And then the clincher. You know, I'm a writer. All creative people have dark periods. You know, he says to this woman, you carry me like a child. You're a goddess when I'm wild. When I'm desperate and black. Someone thought I was saying desperate in black. It's not in black. It's and black. Mm -hmm. Very, very, very dark. When I'm desperate and black, you are golden. So he is saying, it's so romantic, isn't it? It's like they're looking at me, they're staring at me and thinking, I wish my husband could say that to me. <laughs> so is there a correlation between communicating in a more straightforward manner? And, and I'm just asking this because this kind of reflects my experience and having less to say. 
that if you're being playful with lyrics, if you're creating little fantasy scapes, you could do that all day because you're not trying to say anything particular. But if you're just trying to speak from the heart, well, there's only so much the heart has to say. Yeah, this came from the heart. This was me saying that Mrs. Harley has lived with me for 40 years now. We've been married 39 years and she's a brick. I mean, I go away a lot and she runs this quite big property. No problem. She never phones me in the middle of the night. She doesn't call me when I'm in Australia or Germany or America. She doesn't call me and say there's a problem in the house. She doesn't do that. Other guys get those kind of phone calls. And those are the marriages that split up or he gives up the job because she won't let him travel. And mine's not like that. She gets it. I went in to sing the song again with my new voice and my maturity. And I wanted, I'd said to Matt Butler and to my wife, I'll come back with a new verse. I've got, you know, Dorothy is owed a verse, you know, he knows her very well and he loves her very much as most men do. She deserved that. Everybody loves her. She walks in a room and it lights up. She's one of those women. So how much effort went into these? This is six lines, but I know just from experience that the few times I've tried to go back and fix or add to a song that was years and years ago, and I'm not in that mindset anymore. I mean, you've explained how clearly how you can get to a mindset to come up with these, but in terms of picking the actual words, was this a a single effort? Was this very gradually over six weeks or what was this? Uh You're really nailing this. It took a fucking age. (laughs) It took stupid time, but every day in Rockfield for 10 days, for nine, eight, seven or eight days, Matt Butler would say to me, have you written that verse yet? And it got to the point where at dinner one night I said, Matt, I love you, but lay off. Don't ask me again about that because you know who I am. You know I'll deliver the goods. I'll get there at the deadline. I'll have those words. And that was it. That was dropped the subject. I'd been thinking about it for about six weeks and getting nowhere. I wrote loads and loads and loads of stuff in my house, loads of it late at night. And I kept saying to myself, this has to stand up with the lyric that has been in existence since Love's a Prima Donna. It has to stand up with, you're a goddess when I'm wild. You carry me like a child. All those expressions, you know? I've been trying to write this line, but the years have gone by in no time. I have to be able to write something that lives with that. And I'm not as clever as I was. No matter, I'm older, I'm wiser, but I'm safer. We get safer. We lose the energy that comes with imagination. We don't have the imagination anymore as we go to because all the material goods we set out to acquire are hanging on the wall in the house. I've got all the paintings that, that I ever wanted. I've got the first editions of great literature that I craved. Now I don't want them. I, you know, I, I could sell them today and they will mean nothing to me. So I'm not hungry, Mark. I'm not hungry. I'm not Springsteen rich, for God's sakes. Uh-huh. I'm not Sting rich. But I will never be poor, even without any success in the United States. Well, anyway, because we're not hungry anymore, I could name you a dozen of the world's best-selling, biggest live draws on the planet, and you know who they are. Do they release product today that lives with their biggest hits, their peak in the 60s, the 70s, even the 80s? No, they don't. You can't name one that does. Tom waits to a degree, but he'll release one every 30 years like me. Those who release lots, the quality is diminished. There is no question. Otherwise, it's just the way of human nature. My father was cremated on the third to last day of this recording sessions. He's 93. It was a common, quick, no funeral, because his children, there's five of us, and his old relatives are all in so many different places. It made it very, very difficult. And everyone was happy. He wasn't religious. 
And I sat out in the sunshine on July the 7th or 8th at the studio in the countryside of South Wales as my dad was being cremated 200 miles away. I sat there quietly in prayer. I went back in and I said after half an hour, I've got it at last, Matt. Swear to you. My dad was there on my shoulder. He came as the muse. I was able to write, was I thinking of him? You know, he got me through uh, a childhood where they told him I was dying at the age of three and a half. They said I wouldn't survive with polio. And he said, no, my dad was like that. Keep Stephen alive. Whether I was thinking of him being cremated at 93, losing my dad, but I came back in and just said to Matt, here it is, and I need to know what you think, in all honesty. Does it compare? Does it live with the original? Does it fit? Is it worthy of its place? As a third verse of a song, which my audience, you know, it's not a big hit single or anything, but it's considered by my audience to be a precious moment. And I just walked in and, well, I said, put the mic, I didn't read it to him. I said, let me sing it once through for you. And he just, he put his thumbs up. He said, you got it, Steve. It's perfect. And he's a very sentimental man and a, and a, and a really good friend. And I thought, well, he'd be honest with me. Before we go on, I want to stop and tell you again about Masterclass. I'm so grateful to have their support for this podcast and grateful to have my own all-access pass right now in this time of lockdown when we so need educational things to do. There are over 80 different instructors, masters of their craft across tons of categories. My whole family is using this. I see they've been watching Kelly Werstler's class on interior design, Will Wright on game design and theory, Serena Williams teaching tennis, Misty Copeland teaching ballet, which nobody in my house does ballet, but I see multiple episodes of this class have been watched by somebody in my house. It's really interesting to see these people talk about their arts, even if you're not doing that art. But of course, most of you are going to be most interested in the music ones. There are a dozen of those. And this week, I spent some time with Christina Aguilera teaching singing. Now, based on the guests that I choose for this podcast, you could probably guess that she is not one of my prime influences, but she's a really engaging speaker and has a lot of really interesting things to say. There are lessons on diction, on warming up, on increasing your range, cures to heal a strained voice, how to project, how to sing pop versus rock, vibrato, vocal sliding, microphone techniques, studio microphones, and more abstract, touchy-feely kind of stuff. Finding her own voice, how you can express yourself. There are so many different accomplished, enormously talented voices to hear from through Masterclass. And if you buy one annual Masterclass all-access pass for yourself, you get one free to share. So do something for yourself and you get a free Mother's Day gift, or you could look at it the other way around. There is someone else you know in lockdown who really could use this. Why don't you show that you're thinking of that person? Use the offer to get Masterclass for them and get it free for yourself. Go to masterclass.com slash examined to get started with this limited time offer. That's masterclass.com slash examined. Thanks, and let's get back to the show. So I'm going to interpret some of the more spiritual tone that this conversation has taken as a segue to discussing faith and virtue. The next song, the first track on Stranger Comes to Town 2010, can you just say briefly where you're at 10 years ago with this album, the last full on original songs album? Still some of the same people. This is, I see this is Correct with Barry Wickens, your violin play that you were just talking about. Yeah, I'm really, I like that album quite a lot. Is it that long ago? Don't tell me that. (laughs) (laughs) No, it it was a rock band album, you know, and that Faith and Virtue, I write as I feel at the time. I wouldn't think this guy needs a great message, although he does keep saying, you know, there is no faith, and it's a shame. 
I've got faith. I actually go to church when I'm able. It's a shame there is so little of it now. We live on cartoons and Fridays, which means waiting for the wage packet, you know, Friday, waiting for the weekend.
So that's interesting. That it's a social commentary song, but you were just still referring to the narrator in the third person as if this is not exactly your social commentary. This is some character that's ranting about how everything's going to hell, something like that. Did I use the third person? I think you did. <laughs> yeah, I think I did. I often do. I actually have all my life written and thought of it as a narrator because mostly what I write is narrative. It's not throwaway bubblegum. It's usually got a story going for it, the narrative. And this one is, the I feel, it's anyone like-minded people crying out at what the hell has gone on. It's pretty laid back, but the voice is, is just sort of quietly screaming, where did we go? How did we learn that trade? I mean, I don't even know what that means, but it sounds great. <laughs> It sounds like sort of settling for mundanity. In other words, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. just a trade and you work for the weekend, as you're saying. So how does that fit with, like, we get our legacies too soon? What, is, what does that sentiment mean to you? Oh, well, it means that not literally legacy, but gifts from parents and from the government benefit. It's too easy. You know, there isn't a great struggle. In Britain and most of Europe, Northern Europe, it's very hard for young people to get on the housing ladder to start getting a mortgage. It's much, much harder than it was for my generation, much harder. But they get everything else without any effort. They've got massive color televisions in their bedrooms, for God's sakes. They've got every computer, every handheld gizmo. They've got the mobile phone. They've got pretty well everything they could need outside of a property of their own. Okay. So if they get their legacies, we get our legacies too soon. We could dine out on Sunday, meaning let's go out and spend money we don't really have because life's easy now. Let's phone a cardo and get a grocery delivery. They don't even go pushing a trolley around a supermarket anymore. So how does that match up with the no peace of mind, no home? Where did we learn that trade? He's saying no peace of mind, meaning it's not worth it, guys. You're not happy. No home. You're not really anywhere to live. You've got no mortgage. You've got no home. But you're dying out on Sunday. Or we can swim in acid rain. Are you going to save the planet? Instead of living this uh, you know, luxurious, easygoing life, let's take, the, take it all a little more seriously. No faith, no virtue. Well, and chaos in the dance, that faith and virtue goes with, we live on safe regulation, no sense of chaos in the dance. This character is wanting more risk-taking, taking on great deeds. I'm sorry, I, I don't know how I word things so ridiculously <laughs> complicated. <laughs> but we live on safe regulation. You know, health and safety sure. is just, oh, it's everywhere. They're scared to say anything. Like, everything you say is racist over here. It's just become madness. It's a very difficult place to live. We live on safe regulation. No sense of chaos in the dance, meaning no excitement in the movement. No excitement. You get up, like dancing, you're moving through the day. There's no sense of chaos anymore. It's all so safe. It's no fun. There's no adventure. That's what it was. That's why I was saying that even in the song Stranger Comes to Town, which I gave the title of the album as well, it really is a person like me who does come along. I'm no curmudgeon. I love life itself. I love young people. But I am the kind of guy, not very much in public, but privately and in song, I am the kind of fellow that stands up to be counted. I'm the stranger that comes to town. I'm the guy who walks in and says, no, it's not right. Well, we've always done it that way. Yeah, but it's not right. And I don't want you to do it that, doing it that way when, when I'm involved. Thank you very much. I always stand up against authority <laughs> and boredom. 
Can you say a little about the marriage of this sentiment to this musical background? It's mostly peppy. It's like a happy little 80s tune, but then it's got that yearning, the way that the intro, the bass plays against the piano and guitar thing. If it was supposed to be mean social commentary, it seems like this would have been a rougher background. This would be more bluesy or something, but it's just, this is a nice sentiment that you're expressing this. <laughs> That's the uh, pizzicato violin, isn't it? That's always been a way with me. I can't help myself. I think that I try to, I write doom and gloom, but try to deflect the listeners from it with a more poppy tune and production. Remember, Make Me Smile, which while it wasn't a big hit in the USA, was gigantic everywhere else in the world and is to this day. It's huge. It's got a life of its own. And of course it's pop. Ooh la la, you know, ooh la la. And I know that. It's a mid-tempo backbeat. But the lyric is finger-pointing. The lyric is scathing and mocking, sneering. But I didn't want it. It wouldn't have been a number one hit if I'd played it as a slow blues. <laughs> and I see that even in Compared With You, that the original version, it's Tony Rivers arranging these background vocals and just a much bigger, poppier kind of concoction that fits less well, I think, with the lyrics than what you've come up with the new version. If I've re-recorded it, it's obviously because I yeah. thought I could, improve, <laughs> I could improve upon it. <laughs> sure. Well, let's get the third selection out there. So Bed in the Corner slash Sing It. So it's technically two songs, but really Sing It is just musically at least uh, a coda to Bed in the Corner. It follows directly. So we're going to play those two together. Can you say something briefly about it before they hear it in full? Whoa, you're going back so far. I am. From Psychomodo, 1974. I was a very young man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Bed in the Corner is simply everything it says. It's two young people looking each other in the eye and they're thinking loving thoughts. It's no more. It's quite, uh, it's full of lust. Uh, she basically said, I've got a bed here for me, I've got a bed here for you, you can look in my eyes. But she's saying, I'm playing hard to get. And then uh, the segue is so that I could burst wide open, kick the doors down, and say, I'm not having this, I'm not putting up with this, I'm frustrated with this, you know? Sexually, young people, you know, he's dripping hormones. And then he says, I've had enough of this, and he kicks the door down and says, the ship was sailing through a tempest of fear, there was lightning and explosions galore. <laughs> So he's having a wet dream. Ah, okay. Then he looks at her and says, sling it, sling it, meaning go away, throw it away, change it, you know, sling it, stop it. Let's sling it and do it all again, you know? Let's sling it and start again, you know, madam. <laughs> I assume that was a Britishism, <laughs> that sling it is not a normal <laughs> phrase, as chuck it or something, but... There's an expression of, if you want someone to go away... Mm -hmm. In the south of England, London in particular, where I'm from, they'll say, sling your hook. It would go back to the, the uh, ancient shipping times, the pirates, mariners on the high seas. They'd walk around with their hook, which would, they would hang into the wood to hold on and stuff. To unload, the lighter men would, would unload cargo with a hook. Yeah, you know, you've seen on the waterfront. Sure, yes. The film, Marlon Brando on, on the waterfront. Those guys, the dockers. And there was an expression in, on, in the Docklands of London, the docks where I was brought up, where my dad was born, where they say, sling your hook, meaning go away, take your hook away with you, sling your hook. So I'm saying, sling it, sling it, you know, stop, do it again. And then he finishes with this crazy dance. In 5-4. <laughs> yeah, 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 you got it, you're ahead of me, yeah, yeah. 
he's basically saying, let's do it again in 5-4, meaning, come on, this is ridiculous, let's dance. <laughs> like peacocks. He's going, let's dance like a peacock in 5-4 time. I'm the clever one. He's trying to attract her like a peacock.
talk just a little about this crazy, totally different arrangement background than we've had in either the other two. You were producing even back to here, although Alan Parsons is co-producing. So you're kind of running this crazy circus of extra strings. And even if you're not the one Andrew Powell, I saw actually arrange them, but you're kind of put a big thing here. Like, I guess, can you tell, say a little about how you were communicating? You've got Milton Reem James playing the keyboards, which he has this very atonal solo in there. Like how do these arrangements evolve with that group? Yeah, well, I don't think any of the guys around me was born musically wild like I was. You know, they're all trained musicians. Milton was classical. Stuart was trained as a drummer. They were trained and qualified musicians, whereas I was an ex-journalist who taught himself a bit of guitar and wrote songs. All the craziness is me. I can't help it. It's just the way I was. And the great thing with having Alan as a co-producer come engineer for the Sakamoto and Best Years of Our Lives was that Alan understood and let me do everything. I was only 22, 23, 24 years old. And he never said, oh, that's a bit silly. You know, he'd say, crikey, I've never heard anyone do anything like that. Let's do it. You know, he was game for it. Alan Parsons was always game for my uh, eccentricities. He never tried to curtail them. He never fenced me in. With the string arrangements, which can be at times rather wonderful, Andrew from King's College, Cambridge University, studied music at King's. So he's very classical, whereas I'm not, as you know, and I had to ask him to come out of his comfort zone. 
I knew he could. Yeah, I basically would tell him that this is what the song is about, this is what the lyric is saying, this is what the narrator is getting at. Uh, he would interpret it accordingly, and he did it brilliantly, just brilliantly, I think. Yeah, I guess it's kind of the same dynamic going back to the Beatles and George Martin of getting you know people who are young and ignorant of the mechanics of music that can just basically paint a picture and then have the classical people do something that they would never otherwise do. You say paint a picture. I've been known to pick up a pen and a pencil and a sheet of A4 paper and for my engineer actually draw what I wanted to hear. I mean, I'm no artist. I'm not a great artist by any means, but it was my only way of communicating with him. If I couldn't find the words because it was all in my head as a picture. That's why this album Uncovered was so easy to make. It's because I didn't have to draw pictures. I didn't have to explain, except to say no overdubs, no, no twiddling knobs, no EQ, you know? And once you'd got that set up, it flowed. Whereas in my history, I would overdub and overdub and overdub and bring people in and, you know, huge productions. And frankly, I grew tired of it. There's got to be at least compression, right? I mean, otherwise the vocals get lost under things. No. <laughs> you, you could do worse for your podcast, Mark. You could do a lot worse than contact Matt Butler. Sure. And talk to him. He's worked a lot with Paul McCartney as Paul's engineer. He's worked with, he trained with Jeff Emmerich. And Jeff was ah. the Beatles engineer. Yep. yep. Well, he's, a, he's an acolyte of Jeff's. And Jeff was the engineer on my first album, The Human Menagerie. Matt has been a fan since those days. And he'll tell you how he recorded this. He'll tell you that I wouldn't allow him to touch it. We were in a studio with a million pounds worth of outboard equipment, yeah? Half a million dollars worth of outboard equipment. He wasn't allowed to touch it. Let me steer you back, just since we only have a few more minutes here, to when you were touching the knobs, when Alan Parsons was touching the knobs all over the place here. For instance, you got this, I guess this whole island feeling with the prominent string part and this rolls, is it xylophone? Is it marimba something? Do you know what? No, it's Fender Rhodes piano and violin. It's ba 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 it's pizzicato violin again. Okay, because there's distinctly, when she asked me under the, like, what I like to try to explain, I'm hearing... Does it sound like marimba? Yeah, it's something rolled, you know, in the left side under all that. Time, it's a getting late. I'm pretty sure that's off the Fender piano, you know. It would make sense that that would be Jean-Paul doing something because he's not elsewhere in that part of the song. Yeah, that's what I think. But you know, anything's possible at Abbey Road. Um, in number two studio, where we recorded the Psychomodo album, that was the Beatles studio, yeah? The one with the staircase. There's a cupboard, a big cupboard, under the staircase, which contained then, and probably still does, a myriad of bizarre instruments. Because I was so into experimentation, I used to go down and just open that cupboard and pull something out. One day we pulled out the double bass. There was a double bass in there. And we said to the bass player, Paul Jeffries, we got a bow and the double bass. He'd never played one in his life. And it's on Mr. Soft on that album. Vroom, 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 vroom. That's the double bass that was in Abbey Road under the staircase. Bowed by someone who doesn't know how to use a bow. That totally explains that sound. Okay. That's right. It's, it's a mad song. It also, we found a Celesta, and that's on a couple of tracks on the Psychomodo. We dug that out. Now, that, that's not marimba sounding, but because um, it's more bell -like. Celeste is bell-like. Hmm. Obviously, a lot of the stuff coming together when you're getting in the studio, at this point, were you writing in the studio or had this the sling it part of the song that's led off by this electric violin 
this very prominent riff and then the five four thing at the end. Had that all been you'd arrange this as a group, you'd even played it live before you're getting the studio with this, or was this purely a studio creation, this song? Yeah, I used to go in a couple of hours before the guys a lot and work on how I was going to talk to them about how I wanted it to go. Most of it was written in my own apartment in the West End of London in those days. And I went in with a list of production ideas. Oh, I knew it was always going to be 5-4 because it was going to be this mad dance, this fertility dance, <laughs> the peacock. Did you have, as you're writing these things, things like that violin melody? Like, was that part of what you'd written originally, or was this the other band members contributing? Yeah, that's him. You know, musicians are, when they play a session for you, that was a band. We were a band, the first band. All five of us, was, they, they had a signature with a contract with EMI. Before they walked out on me, then we, we bought them out of their contract. You hire musicians that have got ideas, or they don't come back. And if they have an idea and they put it on a track and then they say later on, that idea was my idea and it's a hit record, I demand some songwriting credit. People like me say, sorry, but I hired you to give me ideas. You were paid money. You know, you were paid. I wasn't paid. I'm paying all the bills. I might lose money on this. You can't lose money. You were paid. You went home at the end of the day with money in your pocket. You sent us an invoice for loads of money. So, yeah, that's what they're hired for is their ideas. No, I mean, as a band back then, you're a long time ago, but we were friends and we would just jam a lot to see what would come out of it. Yes, I remember reading that when the police formed originally, that it was kind of set up that, okay, well, Sting is writing all the songs and he'll get the songwriting credit, but that it was financially worked out that I think a third of the songwriting royalty was put toward arranging. So that was to split three ways. Hearing this wonderful functional unit and your story about how it broke up basically over publishing. I kind of, you know, wish that kind of thinking had been in the wind <laughs> at this point to acknowledge arrangers, but yet you're still, you know, as the songwriter, not having to sacrifice your vision. The line to draw here, Mark, is what is a song and what is a record? A record is a production. I say, no matter who does what on a track that you record and they get paid, they invoice my company and my company pays them or the record company pays them with other people, yeah? Mm -hmm. They are satisfied. Now, if musicians change a song so, so much that you could never say it, the original... I would contest that every song I've ever produced as a record, I can sit down in your house and play on the piano or the guitar the song. Yeah. It's a song. Otherwise, there's nothing there, right? No one else wrote that, me. Or if they did, good, they get the publishing. Mm -hmm. They get their share. But if I wrote the song and I took it into the studio and said, here's my song. Now I want you to do this, this and this. And what ideas have you got for the double bass or the, the violin or the electric guitar? Well, that's what they're paid to offer up their ideas. Well, so let me ask you with faith and virtue that we played on here. You're not stingy at this point giving co-writing credit. Was that because Barry Wickens came up with that initial, like the intro riff or something? At least on the internet, it said it was <laughs> co-written by you and Barry. Yes, music co-written by you and Barry. Yeah, the tune. The 50% is the music. Okay, yep. In publishing, so Barry gets 25% of 100. Gotcha. 75 is mine because I wrote the whole lyric, which is 50%. Yeah, Barry was, um, he's a friend and a brilliant, lovely guy and a brilliant musician. And he's the only musician I've ever known who comes to my house that comes and stays here. My children know him from when they were very young. Ah. He has breakfast with us, and he's a, he's a friend. But 
Normally, people like me keep everyone at arm's length because you let them get too close and they take something away. You get a bit guarded. But Barry's family, yeah, he wrote that tune with me. With uh, he, I got out my uh, Telecaster and a little AC30 for a few days. My wife went to visit family and the house was empty apart from me and Barry about t- nine, ten years ago when we were doing this. Yeah, I got my Telecaster out for him, an amp and his violin and some guitars. And we wrote these tunes together, yeah, quite a few. All right, so a lot of it seems like the order of events. So if you sit down and write the song with somebody, even if you end up contributing most of it, you know, depending on what your arrangement is, like that counts as a co-write. Whereas, you know, if you've written the song completely, someone comes after the pack, puts counter melodies over it that really make the song what it is. And like, you know, they're expecting to hear those counter melodies. That still doesn't count as the songwriting. Not really, no. We're walking a fine line here. There's a point perhaps where decent people If a guy does something miraculous in the studio, yeah, I would be saying, and I have done, you've got a part, I'll give you 15% of this, 20% of this, because you contribute. Yeah, you'll find musicians' names scattered here and there as co-writers with me. Never the lyrics, it's always their part of the 50% of the song, which is the tune. No, there's quite a few. One of my favorite songs I sing at every show is Journey's End on an album called The Quality of Mercy. It's got a co-written with about four other guys. They were the guys in the band in the studio that day. And I had a beginnings of the tune. And I said, I'm stuck on this. Can you help me? And they all came up with a two, bu- you know, t- 10 cents worth. So they got the writing credit and they, they earn a few shillings to this day. Yeah. So to, just to wrap up, let's play the other original song from the Uncovered album, Only You, which I see was uh, written in the 90s. It had been buzzing around for quite a bit. It had been on a live album before, but this is the definitive version. So do you want to say a few just closing words about that? Yeah, I owed it to myself to put Only You on the record for once and for all. I mean, we've sung it live a few times, not very often at all. Nobody knows it. But it's a song I've always been proud of and just enjoy singing. And it's a good story, too. No message in the Bible, no bolts of thunder in the sky, only you dancing like a fire, only you. She's special. All right, here it goes, only you. Thank you so much, Steve. Hey, Mark, it's been a real pleasure. Been living the life of a sad lost soul With a head full of guilt and pain Like a messenger carrying bad news home I was torn between the loss and the gain Sometimes I thought survival, oh oh was only a hopeless compromise Many times I felt like quitting Then I saw you Dancing like a fire Only you As bright as any sun And me I was looking for something for so long then Only you came to me I've been traveling lonely from town to town On a road to find eternal youth 
I've been hiding my eyes from my life going wrong. I was afraid to have to deal with the truth. No message in the Bible, no, no. No flash of lightning in the sky. No compromise or pity. Only you dancing like a fire. Only you, as bright as any sun. And me, I was looking for something for so long. Then only you came to me. Since who knows when I didn't know who to thank or blame All the comforting messages ten by ten They said the bottle would bring eternal shame No symbols in the Bible, no, no No bolts of thunder in the sky No sentimental pity, only you dancing like a fire. Only you, as bright as any sun. And me, I was looking for something for so long. Then only you came to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks so much to Steve. I'm not sure when it was that I discovered Cockney Rebel. It was definitely as an adult, but it fit right into the glam rock, semi-psychedelic 70s wheelhouse that includes Roxy Music, Brian Eno, David Bowie, a lot of other stuff that I liked. I'm not sure what it was for both Brian Ferry's early work with Roxy Music and Steve that they both did this Bob Dylan sort of voice in a very un-Bob Dylan-y kind of way. But if you like music from that era, I definitely recommend checking that out. And of course, while I would prefer that he put out an album of all original material, this new album uncovered of interpretations, as he said, really is quite good with really nice personal versions of songs by David Bowie, Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, The Beatles, and some lesser known songs that will send you back listening to the originals. Now, I think I announced last time that this episode was going to be with Casey Clifford. I didn't quite have my files ready for mixing, so that will be released as the next one. After that, I've got some more, let's say, classic artists with Jack Hughes from Wang Chung and Rick Kemp from Steel Eye Span. And most recently, I interviewed a young Turkish-German living in Britain songwriter named Olive Lenz, whose music has been used on Black Mirror and 
The theme song for that Netflix German show, Dark, who is super interesting. So please subscribe to Nakedly Examined Music, you know, to the actual Nakedly Examined Music feed, not Partially Examined Life, where these episodes pop up from time to time, but directly to the feed at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or look me up on Apple Music or Stitcher or Google Play or anywhere else. And of course, if you want to hear the ad-free versions of all these, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. I've been lucky that we have a steady stream of advertising on this podcast now, which means I'm not going into debt, but I'd love to actually get some of my time recompensed in some way eventually. So, so even the smallest recurring donation there would be highly appreciated. If you're listening to this in real time, then, well, you're still in lockdown. Probably every podcast you listen to is talking about being in lockdown. I've released episodes related to that for both Partially Examined Life and Pretty Much Pop. And it's hard for it not to come up in every conversation that I have with my guests on this podcast. Though this one with Steve and the next one with KC were recorded before any of that was happening. There have been multiple potential guests of this podcast, people I had my eye on, maybe that I'd reached out to, that have already passed away from issues related to the virus. It's just all too terribly depressing. The upside, I guess, being that a lot of the artists that we've had on here, I see doing live streams. I watched a Gary Lucas concert this week. I saw Jill Sobule. So this is definitely a good time if you enjoy some artists to go check out what they're doing on Facebook, maybe. And while it's always a stretch to pay for music when you can just listen to it on YouTube, on Spotify, which you know technically does pay them, but so little that it barely helps at all. If you can put a little money toward purchasing actual CDs or on Bandcamp or on iTunes... It will go directly into the artist's pockets that I'm sure would be helpful in this time of reduced ability for musicians to make money from live playing and or devote yourself to promoting guaranteed minimum income, which would be the thing that would buoy musicians in your country the most. Finally, I hope you are keeping safe, keeping creative. I'll admit I did write some lyrics and a melody that featured the prominent line, I dream about the plague instead of you, which I don't know if I will bother to complete or not. But that's the first chunk of song I'd written in quite a while, and it made me happy at the time, so give it a try. Keep on musicin'. Until next time, this is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.